we grew up, and for a long time growing up, we lived in upstate New York in a town called Rochester. And uh, there was not a church that my parents felt real comfortable taking us to there at the time, at that stage in our lives. And so for the four or five years we lived there, every Sunday morning we would have church at home. And, I mean, we had memory verses we had to memorize. We, had, we sang songs out, out of the songbook. We, we worshipped and uh, had uh, Bible study. And so I grew up in a home where because of mom and dad, uh, the word was something very important to me growing up. And I've never lost the, the appreciation, not, not, what's the right way to say it? There's this strong magnetic pull that the Bible has. And you get caught in that pull, and it's a glorious place to be. And it's never changed for me. And, and I'm glad to get to share that with you all this morning. Um, we have uh, mechanically two things to get done. We have started the, this is part three of the history of the English Bible. If you got a handout, last week we did not go all the way through the handout, and I was just going to skip having to prepare something this week until I reread last week's handout. And frankly, I didn't like it. So I trashed it. You can throw yours away from last week. This week takes the place. I've added a little bit more that I wanted to cover this week, and I've rewritten what we had last week because I didn't like it. Um, <clears throat> so... If you're visiting with us, I'm not going to rehash last week, but I do want this class to be able to exist on its own. And so I'm going to ask you to work with me. As a Christian, I do believe in the, the, the uh, 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 strong integrity, the inerrancy of our scripture. And, and I do have this great love. It's a, there's a magnetic pull for me where, where I, 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 Scripture does not get old. It, it, it's like the onion that layer after layer after layer just unfolds the more you dig into it. And it's a wonderful thing. But as a Christian, I ask this question. Can we trust our scriptures? Are our scriptures something that we can rely on? I think for us to be able to trust our scriptures, well, one way to do it is just to put on some blinders. And just say, this is our scriptures, this is what it is, and I'm just going to believe it. And that may be fine for you in your life. I would urge you to always be careful if you do that, because you can then believe most anything. But as a Christian, I believe that it's appropriate to examine why we believe. When one of my daughters came to me one day and said, Dad, I just struggle with some stuff, and... And I, I, I don't even know that I want to tell you this, but I struggle with the idea of, you know, is, is there a God? And, and why do these things happen? And how is the Bible real, real and, and, and all? Is that bad? And I said, absolutely not bad. God is truth. Truth has nothing to fear from questions if they're truly legitimate questions and not just an excuse to disbelieve. And so I think these questions are very legitimate. I embrace these questions. I'm happy to look at these. I'm happy to study these. And I'm happy to share them with you. The first question, for, if we're going to trust our scriptures, that I think we need to ask is, who wrote the Bible? It's not one book. It's not uh, a, a book that one man sat down and, and uh, wrote or translated or, or found. The Bible itself is a collection 
of dozens and dozens of different books written over a thousand year period of time that have been put together into what we today call a Bible. But uh, if you want to know who wrote each individual book, I don't have time to go back through that, but we certainly covered that when we were looking at each book in the biblical literacy class. And so you can go to the website and access those lessons if you care to. The second question that we need to, 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 to address if we want to trust our scripture is, okay, if there are all of these different books or scrolls or writings that were put together into what we call the Bible, who made the decision of what's in and what's out? Was it a person? Was it several people? How did God work through that? How did his body, the church, work through that? Those are issues that theologians call issues of the canon. The idea that the canon is the measuring rod or or the, the, the measuring stick, the yardstick, by which we decide what is merely an inspirational writing and what is God's word, what's scripture. That we find in Lessons 11 and 12 of our church history literacy class, available on the same website, so you can go back and look at those as well. Once we've got this figured out that uh, 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 both as to who wrote the Bible and who decided what was going in the Bible, the third question is, do we know what these original writings actually looked like? See, I would love to have a chance to look at the gospel of Mark, the real very first ink on parchment or whatever it was written on, copy. But we don't have that. We have copies, and we don't even have a copy of the original. We have copies of copies of copies of the original. Because paper just and and parchment by and large, didn't last long enough for us to have it 2,000 years later, especially when you consider how many times in the first several hundred years of the church there were efforts made by the Romans to destroy Christianity. Scriptures were burned. So um, uh, how do we know what the original writings looked like? That's part of what we dealt with last week. And that's also some of what we'll deal with this week. So with that question, tune in. And then the fourth and final question is, do we have an accurate translation of those originals? We need to know who wrote, who decided what's in, do we have what the original writing looked like, and have we translated it accurately? And if we can answer all four of those questions, then I believe we can hold to our Bible and say, this, I have a rational a logical, a reasonable reason to place my faith in, insofar as it reveals God and speaks of man. So that's where we are. And on this, listen up, because we're going to deal with this hopefully in the second half of class. A little bit of review, a little bit just from last week, not a lot, but I want to make sure we're on the same page for all of this. When Scribes and, and monks and, and others were making copies of the Bible. Because remember until Gutenberg in 1450, every copy's got to be made by hand. When these guys were making the copies, there were two general ways in which copies were made. The first is just one at a time. You've got the book. You open the book up. 
You read, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. And then you start writing, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. And rely on horses. And rely on horses. See? That's the one way of copying. The second way of copying that was done was, was one, a, a way that, that gave you more copies, but it left room for a different kind of error. One of the main errors when you're sitting there copying it yourself is sometimes you have a tendency to go back and you don't go to the spot where you were copying from. You go to another word that's the same word you left off on, but it, sometimes it might be a verse later or a verse earlier. So you'd copy the same thing twice or you skip a verse. Or maybe you leave out a the. Or maybe you don't spell something correctly. These are typical errors that, that have crept in through the copying process from the inerrant originals. So another way, though, is when you'd have five people or ten people in a scriptorium, which is basically a dictation room, and they'd sit there with the desk, and they'd have their quills, and they would have, uh, actually, generally, they wrote with a reed way back in the New Testament times, and they'd dip it in the ink that they had made, and they would start writing. But they would write what a man up at the front would read. And so the man in the front would read, and the people would all take it down. Now, there's a whole different kind of error because if I were to dictate to you and I say the word there, we've got three different words for there. There's T-H-E-I-R, like uh, their clothes look nice on the front row. Or there's T-H-E-Y apostrophe R-E, like they're going to go eat lunch today when they're done. And then there's T-H-E-R-E, like over there. So people, and you see those kinds of errors creep in as this process is being made. That there are errors like that should not surprise us. Variant readings is what they're called. They vary from what the inerrant original said. And so the variant readings should not surprise us. I put a picture up here, if, you can, if we can bring down these lights just a shade, Mike, so that we can see that a little clearer. Um, Webster's... Third International, actually that's the first international dictionary, it's published in like 34. For five years, for five years this book was printed with this page. See that word there, Dord? I don't know what Dord wrote that word, but there's no such word as Dord. Dord, noun, physics and chemistry, density. For five years it's there. And what's pathetic is other people have modeled their dictionaries off of Webster's. Uh, that's a polite way of saying plagiarized. And they've stuck Dords in theirs. But what originally happened is there were cards made out that went into Webster's dictionary. Some cards had words and they went in the word stack. Other cards had abbreviations. They went in the abbreviation stack, including this one. That should have read D, period, or D. Because you, you can abbreviate density in physics and chemistry with either a capital D or a lowercase d. So they put it, in, it should read D or D, but for five years they've got it out there as Dord. Because they got the card in the wrong place. So these types of variant, read, these, these, as, as uh, uh, Dale Hernan was telling me this morning, he says, look, I mean, God's been working with a bunch of frail humans for our history. You know, Abraham sure wasn't perfect, but he got the whole nation of Israel out of him. 
We tend to make mistakes. We can take God's inerrant word and start copying it and make mistakes. How many typos of mine have you seen in this class? A ton. Um, so that's just the way it is. Now, the variations in Scripture, it's really interesting to study for, for nerds like me. Because I, I just find it fast. It's like a puzzle. We've inherited in my family from my grandmother this love of puzzles. Bless her heart, she puts them in plates and doesn't understand we can do it quicker, grandmother, if you don't put them in plates. But, but that's an internal family fight. Um, <clears throat> anyway, this idea of sorting things out. And when my grandmother puts together a puzzle, she'll take all of the pink pieces and she puts them on paper plates. She'll take all of the blue pieces and put them on paper plates. I like to spread all the pieces out on the table where I can see them all. She says that she can do it twice as fast as me because she's got the plates and I need the pink plate and I need the blue plate. And, and our family truly has wonderful discussions over the best way to put together a puzzle. But there is a puzzle to be put together with these variant readings in scriptures. Let me explain. Paul writes a letter to the church at Rome. Some people would like a copy. If I had a copy of the original letter Paul wrote, wouldn't you like a copy, especially if you didn't own a Bible and you couldn't buy a Bible, if Bibles weren't being printed, and you just found out that someone came to your church and they had an original writing that was inspired by God, wouldn't you want a copy? And if you don't have a copy machine and you don't have any way of getting a copy any other way, I'd be quick to say, hey, before you leave, I'd like to make a copy of that. And I'd try to do so. And so what would happen is the original gets copied. And it might get copied by one fellow who makes his mistakes. We're calling him in this PowerPoint, oops, one. Then there's this other fellow who makes a copy. He makes his own set of mistakes. And then this other person over here makes a copy. And, and this person makes their own set of mistakes. That's oops three. Now, does that make sense? Okay, what happens next? See, someone else doesn't get the original. The original's left. It's gone. Paul took it, or someone took it over to Rome. And Paul's writing Romans from Corinth. So someone in Corinth made a copy. Paul's going from there to Jerusalem. Someone in Jerusalem makes a copy of whatever copy was brought because Paul sent the original on. Well, when someone makes a copy of Oops 1, what do they do? They probably copy all of Oops 1's mistakes, don't they? And maybe even add a few of their own. So this is the Oops 1A copy. They got all the oops one problems and then they would put an A up there for their own little problems. Someone else may copy oops one and they'll make their own set of new problems as well. That'll be the oops one B. And of course that happens with people who take the two copy or the oops three copy and, and all of these different, and do you see how the variations can sort of, you can go and you can find something, some manuscripts that have the oops one problem. You can say, oh, these must belong in that family, the Oops One family. And you can try and put them together like a puzzle. And scholars have done this, and scholars have been able to find, if we go back to the Roman world at the time that this was being written, they've been able to find different families of texts that have different types of oops to them. 
And so, for example, over in what we would consider Turkey, uh, Istanbul's up there, Antioch, this area is called what, what, or what most scholars now call the Byzantine text. There's no magic to these names. Different scholars use different names. But, but these are a generally accepted classification. And there's a whole family of texts that come out of this area. This is where Constantinople is formed uh, by Constantine the Great in the 300s. And the, the Eastern Church is centered there. And so these are manuscripts, and, and they tend to copy their own. And so these problems tend to grow that are specific problems to that family of text in the Byzantine area. There's another area that's got northern Africa and Italy up into Gaul, modern-day France, and a little bit of Germany. And this area, this is called the Western text. And again, different names by different scholars, but that's a generally accepted name. And it's got its own different set of, of oops problems. Then there is, down in Alexandria, Egypt, in that area, the Alexandrian text. You've got over in Caesarea, in Jerusalem, in that area, the Caesarean text. And these are four big families of text. And scholars are able to take a, a manuscript... And if there's enough of the manuscript there, they're able to read it and before long say, oh, this comes out of that family. Or this comes out of that family. Does that make sense? Okay, now bear with me. King James Version comes along. They translate the King James in 1611. And the Greek manuscripts that they use for King James in the New Testament are almost all, actually are all, Byzantine manuscripts. The oldest one dates from about 1100. So that's what they've got with the King James. Now, if we fast forward, we talked last week about how in the 1800s, new manuscripts became available. Some were incredible manuscripts. The Codex Sinaiticus that was found by Tischendorf at the, the St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai. That, that codex was the most complete scripture. It goes back to 325 A.D. The oldest, basically, full Bible we've got. It's an Alexandrian text down here. And so the scholars with the King James, they've got a Byzantine text. Since that time, we've got Western texts, we've got Caesarean text, Alexandrian texts. They go back a lot further in date. What does this mean practically? It means when you're reading your King James version of the Bible. This is not a King James, but it's a book, so I'm holding it up. When you're reading the King James version of the Bible, you may read things that are different than if you're going to read in the NIV. Now, you might be saying, if you don't know this, you might come across, let's look at a passage. Acts 6, 8. In the King James says, Stephen was full of faith and power. Now, if you read it in the NIV, it says Stephen was full of grace and power. If you don't know the difference in variant readings, you might sit there and scratch your head and say, gee, what Greek word can be translated faith and grace? That's a pretty stark difference in translation. Well, I got news for you. After my years and years of studying Greek, I don't know a Greek word that can be translated faith and grace. Those are two different words in the Greek. The reason the King James uses faith is because the King James 
gets faith out of these Byzantine texts that date from the 800s. is the oldest text we can find with the word faith in it. And they're the Byzantine texts. And that's what the King James was using. The New International Version uses a whole panoply of texts to, to derive, and they find the word grace in the Western text, in the Alexandrian text, and in the Caesarean text. And these go back to the 300s. So scholars look at it, and the NIV committee looked at it, and they said, well, clearly there was an oops back here with one of the Byzantines sometime before 800, and that oops guy is writing out his manuscript, and he used the word faith instead of grace. And so, those copyists who have copied from him in the Byzantine tradition have carried on that oops. But if we look at all of these other families, they indicate to us what the original said and show us the oops, because these are earlier and these are all consistent. Does that make sense? And that's why most Bibles, except for the King James and those that follow the received text, as it's called, are going to say grace. A few of them might footnote and say some later manuscripts use the word faith. But that's what you have. Now, there are a couple of other areas where there are issues like this that we briefly talked about last week before we concluded. In John 7.53 through 8.11 is the story of the woman caught in adultery. Jesus kneels in the sand and writes, ultimately says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. You remember that story. That story's not found in any of the other Gospels. It's in John. Almost every story in John is unique to John. John was writing his Gospel, I believe, at a time after the other three had been written. And his is kind of a, let me tell you some more things that haven't been covered before I die. Because I, at the time John wrote his Gospel, it's the last living apostle. So, we've got the woman in adultery. Now, the, if you look, there are some scriptures that don't put it in the text itself. They put it in a footnote, that story. Others put it in the text, but, but have a big uh, uh, warning almost before the text that says, ancient, uh, most ancient manuscripts do not include the following. Here's what they're talking about. The earliest copy we have of this being part of the Gospel of John is found in a manuscript that dates from either the 4 or the 500s, the 5th or the 6th century, we're not sure. It's in the Western text. We also have it in some of the Latin, early Latin versions in the Western. And so what scholars have decided, uh, uh, I, I guess you've got scholars all over the map, but mainline scholars have decided, is that this is a story that survived in the Western versions of the Bible, the Western traditions... Not in the earlier. Could have been written as a supplement. It could have been added on. It could have been any number of different things. Most scholars, uh, as, as I would as an amateur scholar, still included in the Bible because the odds of a, whole, uh, of a story like that that's, that's made up or fictitious or that, the odds of that coming in in the 500s or 400s and getting acceptance throughout the Western part of Christianity, basically the Roman Catholic tradition, the odds of that for a fictitious made-up story are like astronomical. I, that, that stuff, we don't find that happening in any other way in Scripture in that time period. So it's got to represent a, 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 a valid, genuine 
uh, aspect, and that's why it's not only in my Bible, but I study it, I rejoice over the story, and I teach it. And that's why most Bibles have it in there. Um, now, we did not talk last week about the Old Testament. The Old Testament presents a whole different set of problems because you don't have these Greek letters that were being written or these Greek Gospels that were being written. You've got texts that go back much further. And we remember that our Old Testament was originally written as a collection of scrolls, not of books, right? And the scrolls were put together differently than ours. We have 12 minor prophets. In the Hebrew Old Testament, they were on one scroll. We have Ezra and Nehemiah. In the Hebrew Old Testament, they were combined on one scroll. We have First and Second Chronicles. In the Hebrew Old Testament, they were combined in one. We have First and Second Kings. The Hebrew Old Testament has 22 books to it, as opposed to ours, which have 36 or whatever. 30 who? 39. Yeah, those other three. Um, 39. 22, it's easier to remember the Hebrew number because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And they saw that they had one book, in a sense, for each letter of the alphabet. So they have 22. We have three different kinds of Hebrew Old Testament sources that we could go to back at the time of the King James and the American Standard and these early English versions of the Bible. The first source we went to is what called Masoretic copies. Masoretes were these very special scholars that arose in Judaism after the time of Christ. But within 100 or 200 AD in that time range, these Masoretic scholars came up with these very rigid rules for making copies. And they made copy of, uh, copies of Old Testament scriptures. And their rules were very exacting. They, you know, Old Testament scripture is going to be written in columns. On the scroll, they would count how many letters belonged in each column. And they would compare what they copied to how many letters should have been there. And if they made a mistake, it would be caught. Then they would know exactly within each column what the center letter should be. They would count to the middle letter and make sure it was the right letter. They would compare the letters going down the end with the letters of the original. They had a very exacting process. So we had copies like that that we used in, in early translations of the English. We also had copies of the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It was done by Jews. It was done several hundred years before Christ. And so scholars are able, when they have a question or they have a problem, they're able to go back and, and, and look and see what the Jewish scholars thought. Now, why would that be an issue? Um, does anybody have any paper? I, mean, I don't have any paper. Uh, yeah, I can use this. Thank you. Uh, why would that be an issue? Let's see if we can make this work. That didn't do it, did it? Okay, let's try that. Okay, that didn't do it either. Aha! That did it. Okay. When you write Hebrew, the Hebrew language... Anybody got a pen? <laughs> Thanks, Gary. The Hebrew language didn't have any vowels. So if you wanted to write run, you would write R-N. Well, now you're sitting there and you're saying, well, that could be confusing. Is that run or ran? Or Ron, my next door neighbor. 
are Carol Ray, Way, RN, registered nurse. I think she's a registered nurse. Um, if not, sorry, Carol. Um, RN. Well, the Masoretic scholars, the Masoretic scholars, they were concerned that people were going to lose the ability to pronounce and understand Hebrew. So when they made their copies, they would insert vowels. So they might say, oh, that's the word ran. And they would make it the word ran. Now, let's say you're sitting there and you're translating the Bible and you're reading it and you're thinking, that doesn't make sense. I don't think it's ran. I think it's run. You might go look at the Septuagint and see what those Jewish scholars thought it was three or four hundred years before the Masoretes started doing this elaborate scripting. Does that make sense? Okay, let's see if we can Whoops. get back to this. Um, so we have the Septuagint copies for comparison. A third thing we have is the Samaritan Pentateuch. It sounds goofy, doesn't it? Pentateuch. Those are the first five books of the Old Testament. From the Greek word penta for five. Okay? The Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, the first five books, those were the only books that were deemed, or scrolls that were deemed scripture by the Samaritans. Remember them? They're the ones in the New Testament you didn't want to have anything to do with unless you were beaten and broken down by the side of the road and he was the only guy that was nice to you. He was a good Samaritan. The Samaritans were the ones that the Jews would walk all the way around to have to, to keep from going through their territory because they were half-breeds. They, were, they, they didn't take taken off into captivity in Babylon. And they probably interbred with some of the folks who newly settled Israel after the captivity and the pure breeds were taken off. Well, the Samaritans would tell you, oh no, we're the true Israelites. We don't buy into all of these other things. We buy into the first five books of Moses. And they had kept their own copies in Samaritan. And we still have to... In fact, there are still a few Samaritan Jews today who read and follow the Samaritan Pentateuch. It's the one that says instead of Mount Sinai, you've got Mount Gerizim. So we have very, very old copies of the first five books of the Old Testament in Samaritan. The Samaritan Pentateuch. And so that's what we've got. Now, until the 1900s, the oldest Hebrew Old Testament we had was a Masoretic text, 1008, called the Leningrad Codex. There was another codex that dated 925, almost 100 years earlier, but it's not very complete, the Aleppo Codex. So the, the, when, when uh, Tyndale, when uh, the King James folks, when they start to look around for their best scriptures to understand and translate the Old Testament from Hebrew, that's what they're dealing with. And that, I'm telling you, until 1947, that's the oldest Hebrew we had. Now, Christians were never that disconcerted about it because we did have very good copies of the Septuagint, the Old Testament in Greek. And when we read Paul... He almost always quotes out of the Septuagint. So the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, was good enough for Paul. Jesus quotes from it. It was good enough for the Lord. The church has always felt satisfactorily that that it conveys what God wants conveyed. But in an effort to go back and look at the Hebrew Old Testament, we had the Leningrad Codex. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment and show you something a Jewish historian wrote in uh, the 70s, 
Okay, the 70s. So this is uh, 40 years after the death of Christ. He's writing about his Jewish scriptures uh, in a writing called Against Appian. And Josephus says, we have 22 books which are justly believed to be divine. And how firmly we have given credit is evident by what we do. For during so many ages, in other words, for such a long, long, long time in history, as has already been passed, no one has been so bold as to add anything to the Scriptures. Anything. No one's been so bold as to take anything away from them. To make any change in them. Because it's become natural to all Jews immediately, from their very birth, to esteem these books to contain, that's these scrolls, divine doctrines. And if occasion be, willingly to die for them. The Jews took real good care of their scriptures. Now, in 1947, everything changes. Some sheep herder chunks a rock into a cave about a mile from the Dead Sea, a place you can go see when you go to Israel. In September, Debbie Riddle herself is going to climb up that cliff and show you that cave. (laughs) Mike will be sitting down at the bottom with water when you're done. Shepherd throws, here's a ka-ching! Like he broke a pot, goes in there, and ultimately over 900 manuscripts, 215 of them containing scripture, are found. Now they're in about 10,000 pieces, so grandmother, get the plates out, here's another puzzle to put together. (laughs) But the scholars have. These are scriptures of the Old Testament, that is inaccurate, it's not 768 A.D., that should be 76 to 78 A.D., Okay, so from 250 B.C. until the Romans destroyed the Jewish colonization in that area with Masada is when these, these manuscripts were made. And it's incredible. You can now buy a copy of this Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible. It's, it basically takes all of the Dead Sea Scrolls and translates them into Scripture and shows you where there are differences with our Old Testament and where there are not where it differs from the Greek, where it differs from the Samaritan Pentateuch, and where it differs from the Masoretic text. And the most remarkable thing to me is, oh, it might change branch to branches. It might change animal to wild animal. It might add mountain in between ravenous birds to make it ravenous mountain birds. But the most awe-inspiring thing to me is it shows how incredibly accurate our Old Testament was. It bears witness. There was a complete scroll of Isaiah that really, there are a few spelling differences, which you'd expect. I mean, heavens, we've looked at the King James Version up here, and we got spelling differences in our English between now and then. But I'm here to tell you, it is incredible and it's awe-inspiring. Now, there were a couple of things that were found there. For example, Psalm 145 is what's called an acrostic psalm, okay? And by acrostic, here's what we mean. Let's see if this works now. Okay. Input B, please come on. Is it? It's not. C? Oh, there. Thanks. He's an engineer. I'm a lawyer. I was about to sue somebody over this thing. Um, (laughs) 
An acrostic psalm is the following. Verse 1 starts with, I'm going to do an acrostic in English, uh, figuring that your uh, Hebrew, in Hebrew it'd be Aleph. In English it's an A. And then our next letter in the alphabet is a B. In Hebrew it's a Bet, a B. Our next one is a C, not in Hebrew. They jump to G with Gimel. But each letter of the Hebrew alphabet has a verse. And each verse follows that letter. Does that make sense? Well... In the Hebrew alphabet, where you would expect to have the letter N, that verse was missing from our Masoretic texts. So in an English equivalent, in the Hebrew, it skips from M to S. N is the letter in between M and S. But in a Hebrew, it'd be like a verse going M, you know, like Mother's Day is a wonderful day. And then instead of having an O, it goes straight to P, which is Papa's Day is even better. You see, and, and you've left out the O. We found a copy of, actually multiple copies of Psalm 145 that have the missing verse in them. And so it fills that in. Now, I have a question for you. How does this square with inerrancy? Well, inerrancy doesn't mean that people like you and me can't make mistakes with Scripture. Inerrancy is a reference to the original writing of Scripture. As Scripture was originally written, it was precisely what God wanted it to be. And it is precisely accurate in everything that it claims to be. That's what inerrancy means. So don't let the fact that we... In fact, it's, it's that we believe that the Scripture is the Word of God that makes it so important for us to try and go back and understand what the original scripture said. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, when we get to the English translation then, what does that mean? Well, first of all, the original text itself gets refined. What we mean by that is, we had an original English King James, we've had subsequent translations. One of the reasons we have follow-up translations is we found new manuscripts. We've got greater understanding. we got the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have a better understanding of the original text, and we want to put that into our English Bibles. So we get new translations. Does that make sense? A second reason we get new translations is the English language develops. Let me give you a quick example. Here's the King James in Romans 1.13. Now, I, I would, oh, oh, mercy, y'all have been missing this? This was a dynamic PowerPoint. Okay. The original text gets refined. It changes. The English language develops and changes over time. You know, go back and read your King James. Thou, thee, thine, visiteth this. We don't talk that way anymore at my house. Unless someone's really in trouble. Get thine self down here. Um, look at Romans 1.13 to see this language different. Now, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you. In other words, hey, please know I've been trying to visit. But was let hitherto. Let. Well, we think let means allow. Back in King James' time, it meant allow, but it also meant to hinder. I was hindered. I was let hitherto. We still use the word to mean hinder in one sense only that I can think of. Maybe you can think of more. And that's in the game of tennis. If the net hits the ball on a serve, it's called a let serve because the net hindered the ball. Okay? 
Outside of that, it's not really in everyday usage of English. So these things get changed. In 1881 to 85, uh, the Anglican church specifically said we're going to update the King James with better scholarship on the text and, and current English. They worked with Americans in doing that. Philip Schaff, the American guy from Union Theological, worked with them and some others. The Americans came out with their American version in 1901, the English in 81 to 85. It was a word-for-word, literal translation. The Americans substituted the word Jehovah for Yahweh. Got the Jehovah's Witnesses all wrapped up and excited. This has been their, like, major Bible. It's not accurate for reasons if we had more time I'd go into, but I've burned our clock. Uh, Oh, come on. Here's the deal. Jehovah is the Hebrew letters, actually it's yod Hey vav Hey, which is Yahweh, okay? But that can also be a J for the Yah, and the Germans would pronounce that with a V. You know, the W is a V. So they'd do that. Now, we don't know what vowels went in, right? So, hey, let's just throw in some. Well, we'll add a little E, we'll add a little Ho, and we'll add a little A. Get some vowels in there. And they take Yahweh and turn it into Jehovah. But we don't know. In fact, we have a pretty good indication. I don't know many legitimate scholars who think that that's how the name Yahweh would be pronounced. But that's how Jehovah comes in. Stylistically, it's an ugly translation. It's not very pretty. Like King James is at least pretty. Now, the Revised Standard comes in in 1946 to 1957. And they say, okay, we've got to revamp it again. And they do it and they take out all of the these and thous unless it's reference to God. Then they keep them in for respect. But they make some other major changes. They take, for example, uh, let me do it this way. Isaiah 7.14 in the King James says, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, see? Revised Standard changes virgin to young woman. And it kind of like takes away the virgin birth from that passage. You still got it in the Luke account, but it takes it away in that passage. The Hebrew word Alma that's translated there can mean a virgin or it can mean a young woman. The RSV, the Revised Standard guys, decide, hey, enough of this virgin stuff, let's go with young woman. Subsequent translators and even the new Revised Standard Version junked that and said, why don't we go back and look at what the Jews translated that word into in the Septuagint several hundred years before the birth of Jesus. They don't have the taint of Christianity. It hasn't happened yet. And the Jews translated that word into the Greek word parthenos, which means virgin, nothing more, nothing less. So the Jews thought it meant virgin several hundred years before Christ was born. Seems fair to translate it that way now. Um, Revised Standard really miffs me on what they did with hilasterion. And I'm going to make... I've taken too much of your time, and I'm sorry. I try to end by 12, even though technically we end at 12.05, because a lot of people have kids. Let Let me tell you this. Hilasterion is a word that's translated propitiation in the American standard. Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to show his righteousness. Propitiation means that there is an angry God, in essence, a wrathful God, a God whose very being demands justice. And a propitiation satisfies the justice of God. 
The Revised Standard people didn't like the idea that God is painted as someone whose wrath needs satisfaction. So they decided, even though that's what the word is, they just translate it differently. They translate it as expiation instead of propitiation. Expiation just means it removed man's sins. It washed his sins. It doesn't have any reference to satisfying God's justice. Satisfying God's justice and wrath. See, what Jesus' sacrifice did is both. They're both taught in Scripture. You shouldn't leave one out. Yes, He took my sins. But more than that, He made peace with God and satisfied His justice. If God doesn't have justice that has to be satisfied, then Jesus didn't have to die. God could wash over my sins. But He can't wash over them because justice demands the price be paid. And God, the just God, cannot change. So that justice must be met. Needless to say, I don't like that change in the Revised Standard. English Standard Version, it tries to fix a lot of these. It's a great word-for-word. James Dobson, the Lutheran Church, and others have supported it. Um, We've got versions that seek what's called dynamic equivalency, where they want to go word-by-word, but if they need to get an idea across, they're a little bit more bendable. That's our NIV. Some folks say it's got an evangelical agenda. They don't like it accordingly. There are other versions that are called paraphrases, These try to convey an idea instead of a word-for-word translation. Um, These are things like the Living Bible. Okay, These aren't good if you want to do serious Bible study. Uh, They're good to help you get a grasp of what that person thinks the passage means, but not for serious. Here are our points for home. And I'll make them brief, but I mean them. We have a God who communicates. He's always had his message understandable. There's not a Bible I can find in history that didn't teach adequately that Jesus Christ died for our sins and we put our faith in him. We have God's eternal life. God wants us to know that message. And he has always communicated it. I also marvel at the care and precision of our Bibles. I mean, most of the changes, all all these variant readings in the Greek New Testament, you know what most of them are? Whether the word the has been left in or taken out. That, That like clips out half of them. And word order and stuff like that. It's, it's really incredible how precise our Bibles are. And all scriptures, regardless of the translation that I've seen, they all point to Jesus. And that's the core. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the one the Bible proclaims. And then finally, we should read and study it accordingly. I told some y'all last two weeks ago, please read your Bibles. Make a commitment with me, even if it's a verse a day. That doesn't mean you get off with a verse a day. It's like food. Eat something today, but I'd rather you eat a good, well-rounded meal. Read your Bible in a good, well-rounded way. Read some Old Testament daily. Read some New Testament daily and spend some time in the Psalms and Proverbs. Pray with me, please. Lord, I've taken too long to explain what was on my heart today, but I pray that you will bless this message, that you will move us in courage to embrace you Never to doubt uh, or worry about doubting or worry about questioning because, Lord, truly you have answered. You have all the answers to our questions and, and you certainly don't fear our attempts to understand you. I pray that I'll be a blessing to these folks in explaining some things that, that uh, you would have us understand. And I ask you to bless them today, bless our moms and grandmothers and, and uh, uh, be with us through Jesus. Amen.